Hello and welcome to Asia Matters. I'm Andrew People, and I'm Vincent Nee. This is a new podcast that aims to take you deeper into the stories affecting the world's most exciting region. This week, we are delving into the ongoing trade war between the U.S. and China, which has brought relations between the two countries to the lowest ebb in years, really. Yes, hopes that the two sides might reach agreement have repeatedly dashed, suggesting this is a battle that could run and run. So, what does this trade war tell us about the competition between the world's two largest economies, and who are the winners and the losers amidst all of that back and forth? Joining us to help shed some light on the seemingly never-ending negotiations is Ling Ling Wei, who has consistently been ahead of the game in her reporting on the trade war for the Wall Street Journal. And we'll also be speaking to Trin Nguyen, senior economist for Emerging Asia at Natixis in Hong Kong. So Lingling, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. It's really my pleasure to be here, Andrew.、Um, I just wanted to go back a bit to the real start of the trade war. I know it seems a long time ago now, but when did this trade conflict really start between the U.S. and China? And more importantly, why did it start? You're right. It just seems like you know a long time now, given. You know how、uh, we actually have been in this trade war for nearly two years now. You know, we,、uh, my colleague Bob Davis in Washington, and I myself have been really quite involved in covering this whole saga、uh, on a daily basis for the、uh, past two years. So sometimes it's a little really、uh, amazing to us. This has been going on for so long already. Uh, so to your question, how did it get started and why? So the trade war started when the Trump administration、uh, really decided to call out China for its failure to live up to the promises China has made for many years to the global trading community、uh, that China would implement market-oriented reforms. Abide by WTO rules、uh, in many sectors. So the U.S.、Uh, ever since、uh, President Trump came to power has pretty much got fed up with it. So the Trump administration did something that was、um, historic in a sense, which is they pretty much reset America's view of China and、yeah. called out China for it. So that's really you know to put it. Um, simply, that's how it got started. And I remember, really, after Trump's first year in office, there seemed to be a sense that actually things might not be so serious. He'd obviously talked about China quite a lot during the presidential campaign, and then it, it really didn't get underway、uh, for about a year. He talked about calling China a currency manipulator, which means to sort of accuse China of adjusting the value of the yuan to suit its own purposes. But but that didn't happen straight away. Why did things suddenly go downhill so fast? Do you think in in really the second year of the Trump administration? Obviously, there was a consensus in Washington that they needed to be tough on China. But what was lacking, I mean, still probably lacking now, is a strategy, a plan in terms of how to deal with China, how to be tough on China. One turning point was really. In the late spring of this year, which was、uh, around late April and early May, yeah, you know when there seemed to be, you know, both sides seemed to be closing in on a deal, then all of a sudden the talks collapsed 
uh, U.S. accused China of reneging on the text of agreement both sides had spent months negotiating over, and sort of like then all hell broke loose. Uh, the U.S. stepped up increases on tariffs, and China retaliated. And then they also sanctioned Huawei. Uh, that again was sort of like a wake-up call to the Chinese that. The U.S. is no longer a reliable partner yeah. in this relationship. They have to double down on whatever they have been doing all along. So, so that was really a turning point in this trade fight. And in China, there seems to have been some shock at the seriousness of the U.S. They seem to have been caught off guard by the U.S.'s approach. Why, why do you think Beijing seems to have read the Trump administration? Um, so wrong, if that is the right interpretation. Well, I mean, the Trump administration has been puzzling, I guess, not just for yeah. China, <laughs> for the entire enough. world, even for the Americans themselves. Um, so so for, for, for the Chinese, the communist leadership, uh, they have been used to this kind of protocol, you know, long established rules and regulations. So they're not really, the system is such that the officials are not really, you know, adept at, um, you know, being spontaneous or right. creative in terms of coming up with solutions to an unpredictable partner. China, actually, as you know, Andrew, based on years of covering the Chinese economy, China has been used to being the unpredictable part, Right. U.S. diplomats, yeah. U.S. officials, U.S. business people spent years, years trying to figure out what the leadership was thinking, right? right? So all of a sudden, the, tra- the table has turned. Yeah. Now, China looks like the, the predictable party in this whole relationship. Mm. And that's really a big change for the leadership. And the, the lower-level officials, obviously, right now, under President Xi Jinping, you know, the the power has been more uh, re-centralized in, in the hands of President Xi. So the officials um, lower down, you know, even if they sensed something or, you know, they wanted to be helpful, you know, contributing to solving the problem, nobody really uh, can do it on themselves because mm-hmm. everything, you know, has to be decided by the top leadership. Mm-hmm. Lingling, going back to the original American complaint, obviously currency has been one of the sticking points. But the other sticking point is the so-called intellectual property infringement. And I remember this has been talked about even since the Clinton administration. Why has it been taking so long for Beijing to respond to this American complaint? Well, uh, that you just touched um, on the heart of the U.S. trade offensive against China. They just felt like China, for years, China has promised, promised, promised yeah. to take actions to better protect IP and do other things. But, you know, uh, but the, the progress is either too slow or they haven't really taken serious actions at all. So that really um, is, you know, the, one of the key reasons for, for what we're seeing now. Uh, in terms of why, I mean, the WTO, China's WTO entry in 2001 was really an impetus for China, for the government to start getting more serious about IP protection. And they have made progress 
in terms of, you know, preventing the flood of copycat, uh, you know, electronic products, etc. Mm-hmm. China has made certain progress in certain areas uh, like patents and all that. But the progress is not quick enough. And in certain areas, especially industries, China wants to dominate for the future. It seems like China has stepped up uh, either Chinese companies or local officials. They have stepped up pressure on U.S. companies or foreign companies overall, hand over technology. So the scheme, so to speak, has become more sophisticated. It's not merely action of theft, but it's more subtle and um, sophisticated actions that 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 will allow Chinese companies to get technology from foreign companies for very little cost or no cost at all. Right. There's a lot of uh, talk of decoupling between U.S. and China, and you've been reporting on this trade war uh, in Beijing since the start of it. Have you been seeing much action in terms of decoupling at all from Beijing? Well, that's a great question. In my view, and based on my reporting, it's really interesting that it's the Trump administration that has been making this kind of threat about decoupling, but it is really China that is taking it really more seriously. Mm-hmm. We have seen in certain areas, especially uh, in the technology industry, you know, China is increasingly emphasized self-reliance, speeding up efforts to substitute domestically made components for foreign components. So, yeah, China actually is taking actions to decouple while the U.S. is still in a, sort of like appears to be threatening it. What do you think ultimately is the U.S.'s aim here? In your reporting as well, what, what conclusion have you come to about that? Because on, on the one hand, there seems to be a camp within Washington that mm. has more limited aims in a sense, i.e. they're looking at this big trade deficit that the U.S. has with China and, and thinking we've got to do something to correct that. On the other side, there seem to be the sort of likes of Peter Navarro and so on, who are really seeing this as a sort of very long-term struggle in which the U.S.'s economic model is being challenged by China and the, and the U.S. somehow needs to fight back and sort of seek fundamental reform of the way that China runs its economy, the, the whole system of state-owned companies and state-owned banks giving cheap loans and so on to, to companies. There seems to be on the one hand, a camp that sees this as a systemic issue and one that sees it as more of a sort of near-term trade deficit issue. Is, right. is that a fair comment? And, and where do you think the balance lies now in Washington? That's definitely fair and accurate. Um, throughout the, of this trade war, um, the U.S. Uh, the Trump administration has, seems to be quite divided over exactly what it is that they want to accomplish um, from this trade fight. You have seen, you have just nailed it. You know, on one hand, they are emphasizing structural issues, especially by the group led by uh, USGR Robert Lighthizer. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, it's really Ms. Uh, President Trump himself who, you know, once and again emphasized the need to beef up China's purchases of U.S. agriculture products, right? So you have really not very consistent message coming out of Washington 
that has led to questions among China's own negotiators. You know, what is it that you really want? Is it really more act purchases or all of it? Right. Obviously, uh, you know, right now we're witnessing those sides trying to get a phase one deal. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's still a question mark whether or not they can achieve that. But, But we have reported that there has been a major push for this limited phase one deal. So this deal is limited uh, in the sense that the majority of the content would be China buying more soybeans than other U.S. farm products. In return, the U.S. would agree reduce or cancel some tariffs. So that's the gist of the deal. Then the question is, okay, if they have a phase one deal, would they have any motivation to keep the talks going, have a phase two or phase three, right? Because, right. you know, it certainly work for, would work for China. A phase one deal, however limited, it could help de-escalate the tensions and help reduce pressure on China's economy. But it's really far from accomplishing what the Trump administration set out to do, Right. which mm-hmm. at the beginning, the 301 investigation, the report, laid it out very clear. Yes. What they wanted to to change was what they have said, rampant tax theft and, you know, that kind of behavior. Right. One of the things people are talking about when observing this trade war is the, the shift in supply chain. And you've been reporting from the ground in China. Have you been talking to any business owners um, who are worried about um, the shifting in supply chain and how are they responding to it? You know, the shifting of supply chains definitely are happening. And the trade war is the key reason for that because uh, businesses, they don't like uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And the, the war of tariffs make it really much more expensive and costly to operate in China. So especially in the tech sector, and we, we are seeing either companies are thinking about moving supply chains out of China already have done so. But on the other hand, there are also foreign multinationals that are Mm. doubling down in China. Because after all, they see China as this big market that's not going to go away Mm. uh, in in the foreseeable future. So we even see like U.S., uh, uh, this retail train, Costco, right? Right. they opened their first mainland store um, a couple of months ago in Shanghai yeah. and had to close early because, right. you know, they were basically, uh, you know, flooded uh, with uh, bargain hunters right. in China. Right. So so we, we're really, this is, yeah, exactly. So I think this is a more complicated picture we're, we're talking about here. On one hand, if you're a um, multinational company, your strategy really is produce in China and sell to the Chinese market, you're staying as potentially expanding. Mm. But if you're a multinational company, your strategy has been to produce in China but sell to the rest of the world, you may be thinking about leaving China or, or you already have done so. So it's really a more complicated picture than just, right. you know, multinationals are leaving or they're coming in. It, it, they're both. It's both. But it, the overall picture, if I were China's policymaker, 
you know, that's probably one thing that would keep me up at night. Because mm. for the past few decades, China really has owed part of its economic rise to the willingness uh, by the U.S. and the rest of the world to welcome China right. into the global trading system, right? So, so it really, China has benefited greatly, tremendously from the engagement with the rest of the world, particularly the U.S. and other developed countries. Right. Yeah, there's a there's a shift in the the tolerance of China and the the tolerance of the way that China does things. And, and do you think do you see this as something that's going to outlive Trump. I mean, whether he wins the election next year or not, it seems like actually, if you look at what the, the Democrats have been saying in their campaign so far, that actually, this is one area where there's quite a lot of common ground between the Democrats and the Republicans in America. Definitely, that won't end with Trump. Right. Um, you know, arguably, it didn't start with Trump yeah, either. Because yeah. even before the Trump administration, certain actions taken by the Chinese government had already, you know, incurred threats from from the West and the U.S., um, the Washington. So the seeds had already been planted way before Trump came to power. A Democratic president potentially would add human rights, labor issues to the mix of problems they want to tackle when mm. it comes to China, not just trade and economic issues. So Ling Ling, can I ask, uh, obviously you and Bob are writing this uh, book together, which I'm very much looking forward to reading because the the two of you have really been ahead of the pack on reporting on the trade war. Simple question, though, who's winning at the moment? Who do you think is actually gaining from this or, or are both sides losing? Who's actually got the upper hand, do you think? Thank you very much, Andrew. Um, both Bob and I am very excited about this book. By the way, it has a title. Uh, oh, great. The title is Superpower Showdown. Right. Uh, it will be published. <laughs> it will be published by um, Harvard Collins in wow. June. The title next year. says no. So definitely, <laughs> yeah. Thank you, and and we're looking forward to it too. So to your question, who is winning in the moment? Well, during the, the course of this fight, um, I have to say China has made some wins. At least, at least you know. Tactically speaking, for instance, just let's look at the latest round of negotiations. Mm. So during the early round of negotiations, China had wanted to basically jack out the talks, mm. right? Let's let's talk, let's basically take a step to step, step by step approach. Solve some issues first, then continue and go on to, you know, tackle other issues. But the U.S. side was the one that insisted on having a sweeping deal that mm. could cover everything, right? So, so that obviously didn't happen, like how the talks collapsed in early May. And now, after the, the round of talks in October in Washington and after President Trump's press conference in the Oval Office, what we see is that the U.S. side actually has accepted the Chinese proposal, which is to hold the talks in stages, right? Let's have a phase one first, and then going to phase two, and then going to phase three. So that exactly is what China wanted at the very beginning of this, this whole uh, saga. 
Right. So that's one tactic, tactical win China has scored. And the other, another thing is, you know, the phase one deal, again, as we talked about earlier, is a very, even if it happens, it's a very narrow deal for strong purchases. You know, that's something right. China can deal. So again, it's not a huge concession on the Chinese part. So tactically, yes, mm. China has scored some wins. But overall, there's really no winner out of this trade war, right? Because both uh, economies are suffering. Mm. China's economy, for now, is suffering Mm. more than the U.S. economy because China is more dependent on manufacturing and trade than the U.S. economy, right? Uh, And longer term, U.S. consumers would have to bear the cost. And, and China can no longer count on U.S. support, something they have counted on for decades. They're all on their own, right? They, yeah. they, they might be able to manage, but their progress of moving up the value chain right. ultimately would go, right? Yeah. So it's, there's, and the global economy, we see every single day, right, how the markets get rattled by yeah. every little piece of more news about the trade talks. Right. We're running out of time, but I think I shouldn't let you go without asking you how this trade war is received in China by people in China. So one troubling sign that we're seeing in China is really this growing nationalistic sentiment. Mm. It's really not conducive to forging a deal or making sure both sides remain calm and can really clear-headed to really talk through the problem. And, you know, it's partly a government undoing, right? The propaganda day in, day out basically portray the U.S. as this big bully, right, mm. that's trying to uh, prevent China's uh, rise as a global power. Um, so that really is troubling for us to see that uh, it's not healthy for yeah. Not, not a healthy development. Ling Ling, thanks so much for that. Absolutely fascinating stuff. We're going to turn now to Trin to talk a little bit more about the economic impact and the impact on markets from the trade war so far. Trin, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, what I wanted to talk to you about really is what fallout we've seen from the trade war so far. What kind of economic impact do you see as having uh, both in the U.S. and in China and more broadly? Uh, right. So I think the, the trade war, you can say that you cannot talk about trade without investment. So if you want to see where the fallout is seen most, is really on the investment side. Clearly, the size of the tariffs um, are uh, key, but as a share of GDP for both of the U.S. and China, they're not large. Uh, but what's important is whether how that is impacting a China growth trends, growth trends, and more importantly, impacting the economies in the region. And so investment in Asia has been falling. Uh, It's decelerating. The biggest uh, deceleration we see so far really is out of South Korea. And in that, you have double digits contraction of exports, Singapore, but they're not alone. You see it in Japan. You see that in China, uh, where trade hasn't grown really this year in terms of year to date. Um, And and really, it's hitting China's confidence and and, and earnings, particularly when it always has 
uh, domestic slowdowns. And we're looking at Asia where we're at a juncture where there's a lot of debt um, and that debt servicing is becoming much more difficult as demand regionally is slowing, particularly in places like China where it's been primarily a driver of growth for the region, but not just China, Europe, um, uh, and also increasingly the U.S. Um, so the trade war is something that is um, basically uh, on top of already structural and cyclical weakness that we have yeah. happening globally. How are these um, you know, back and forths received in the rest of the region? I'm thinking about countries like Vietnam, you talked about Indonesia, all these Southeast Asian countries. Are they benefiting from this U.S.-China trade friction at all? Right. So when you have the biggest economies having friction with each other, it creates challenges and it creates opportunities. So let's just talk about the challenges first. Challenges in that these are places where they demand goods, right? They become the final destination of goods. For China, they, they it imports a lot of goods, whether it's commodities, but also on the manufacturing and intermediate side. So it's the U.S. Uh, the U.S. imports 2.6 trillion. China is, is not behind. It's 2.1 trillion. So massive, like we're talking about almost $5 trillion of goods that it buys from the rest of the world. Um, so, so that's a negative impact if they stop importing uh, or, or, or decline in the imports. So we see that already decline of imports from China, um, and less so in the U.S., of course. But the, the point here is that that's a negative drag, and that's a negative drag throughout the region and globally. However, on the positive side, it creates opportunities in that it creates arbitrage opportunities, right? It creates mm-hmm. uh, 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 not just the like of Vietnam, which has been the, the play, the arbitrage play for China already starting in around 2011, 2012, um, because the cost, the, the, the story of the cheap China story is no longer there as wage rises, land cost rises, and then and the regulatory uh, uh, environment is no longer as favorable because it doesn't see that it needs to, do, to be so favorable, right? It has its own uh, ability uh, to, to generate capital, and only that... Um, becoming a place to invest in its own right, not just a place to be uh, to, to invest in cheap China. So there's that move. And in addition to that, places like Vietnam prepare themselves through EU FTAs, through incentives. And so as a result, you see a lot of firms moving to Vietnam. The second thing we want to highlight is that within this trade war story, a lot of things are missed in that the medium size, the medium power countries like South Korea, Japan, um, uh, the, 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 the North Asian economies like Taiwan, etc. They have been diversifying from this, uh, what we would call the cross-five trade war, the U.S.-China trade war, right? Um, so, so it creates opportunities for these economies as well. Uh, it means that there's a lot of investment flows uh, from 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 North Asia, capital rich slowing into uh, capital starved economies that have a lot of potential and much cheaper. So that's and interesting. That, so you it's... can even have uh, economies like Taiwan that take it to a step further. You know, they they take it mm-hmm. a step further by having reshoring policy, and that's why um, Taiwan is 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 outshining Hong Kong, outshining uh, Singapore, and outshining uh, South Korea because. Uh, growth is accelerating there. So that's interesting. So there's a there's a broader shift in kind of investment and trade flows going on outside of the, or, or at least exacerbated by the US-China trade war. Um, can I just ask you a little bit more about the shift in manufacturing that's that's been going on uh, to places like Vietnam, where, you know, already labor potentially is cheaper than in China because wages have been going up in, in China. How much has that been happening and how much more room does that trend have to run, do you think? 
Uh, right. So if you look at uh, inward FDI for China for manufacturing, it peaked uh, around 2011, um, and, and so since then it's declined. But of course, not everything declined. Um, some higher end um, is rising. If you look at the deeper into textile, it declined quite massively, and that's what we call labor intensive, which means you need people to put things together. So you wage um, labor input wage cost is important. And that has started to move, and that, that has only accelerated, right, as we talk about the Asian yeah. China, the more expensive China, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so that will continue to shift to Vietnam. Um, and, but, you know, there's only so much Vietnam can right. absorb from China, right? It's, 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 it's a 90 million uh, population. Um, and, 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 and so, um, the, you know, econo- the economies are trying to look at other alternatives, like Bangladesh India, or Indonesia, the Philippines, um, and really India yeah. is really the only country that's comparable to Vietnam. But unfortunately, um, in that India is only beginning, which is actually um, something that we've seen lately, which is that it reduces tax rate for manufacturing to now on par with Singapore, mm-hmm. um, um, and 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 so it's, it's taking steps to make it more favorable. Um, but it needs to do more. So a lot of the the, the FDI into India, which has increased a lot, is really just to serve India itself. So for, for India to be this arbitrage center, the, the same role that China and Vietnam is playing, um, um, it, it would have to be more of a pull, uh, not just a push, right? A push is that firms want to leave, they want to diversify. Right. Uh, but, you know, firms have many alternatives, right? They, they don't just have one, so if not Vietnam is saturated, they can try to look at Thailand. And then these different Southeast Asian economies specialize in different segments of the manufacturing chain, um, because Vietnam uh, is on the labor-intensive end, but Thailand is more medium tech. Um, so there are a few places they can go in Southeast Asia. But again, the Vietnam story has some, some more room to run, but there's only so much room it can go. Of course, there are many opportunities, as you just said, but there are also risks. For example, technology, you know, there's a lot of focus on Huawei. You know, how are these countries hedging their bets between U.S. and China on technology? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult. Um, economies in Asia, and when you talk about economies of countries, um, they're, they're used to this, right? Um, I mean, it, of course, this, this relationship is becoming uh, more contentious as time goes by in terms of strategic competition. Um, but but in, 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 from that point of view, I think they're quite um, um, it is, it is difficult to, to navigate this. But at the same time, they're used to it as well. Like, you know, if you look at Vietnam, a country where um, it has its borders with China, and where traditionally has, um, you know, depended on China, uh, you know, during the Mao's years for, for Vietnam to to, uh, to to fight. and then But then at the same time, it also had contentious relationship between, uh, in terms of the 1979 war, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for, for these economies, they're, they're used to dealing with it because they know that ultimately China is in Asia. You can't change the map. China is here to stay in, in, in Asia. And that creates opportunities and challenges. You have to balance that relationship delicately. What that means is that it's also necessary to have a hedge, such as the U.S., right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that so, so, so it, it uses this to its advantage. And, 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 and finally, what we want to say is also that it's not just these two economies, these two superpowers fighting and then the little guys in between not knowing what to do, but also there are other powers contending for influence, and, and they see themselves more aligned with each other, right? Uh, Vietnam sees its relation with Japan, for example, or South Korea, or with Taiwan. So this is why you see a trade integration and an investment integration between uh, um, uh, these economies, and because that kind of relationship has less friction, 
right? Um, however you want to call, and they're more aligned than other relationships. So, so they are creating space for themselves, and some have a harder time um, because they they tend to, if you skew in too many one direction to the other, then you are not able to extract as much as you can out to leverage your position as a, even though you're a small player in the geopolitical or in the global trade system, right. um, or if you're poor, it doesn't mean that there isn't space for you to play. And I think that's the emphasis here. And, and, and of course, mm. that's increasingly delicate. Uh, but, but again, uh, it also means you have leverage, right? <laughs> Arguably then, Trin, you're seeing sort of greater regionalization of trade. Um, we've seen um, various ideas on trade agreements within Asia. Obviously, there was the TPP. That was something that America, certainly under the Obama administration, was keen to join. And then Trump pretty pretty much pulled out of that um, straight away. There's also the alternative uh, trade agreement, the RCEP in Asia, which includes China and several other Asian nations. Which which means Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. Partnership. That's right. Um, How's that going? Uh, do you see sort of scope for a regional trade agreement of that sort? Well, at the center of most of the regional trade agreements, it's really Southeast Asia. So Southeast Asia already has that with other um, Asian economies, right? Um, so the RCEP is just uh, one that, that, that lays on top of that. Uh, but really, if you look at RCEP, the key point is that India is not part of it, right? Right. Um, and, and India, for many of these export-oriented economies, which is basically the traditional Asian model to grow, is India is, is the key target in that India has a trade deficit. India has huge population. Uh, it will be the largest in the world. Uh, right now, China is the largest, but China's population will peak. Uh, and so it's, it's this potential of India that everyone's looking at, at the to sell to India. And, and, and because tra- India is not a big trader in terms of merchandise trade, there's trade in services. Um, and as a result, well, many of the Asian economies find that they're quite complementary and find the, 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 the market of India is quite attractive. Um, and so I think, I think from that point of view, um, it, is, <laughs> it is in a way a setback for, uh, as well because it doesn't include in India, right? Um, and, 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 and so the question is, how is India going to position itself in growing? within the region because it does have this potential, but it needs capital. It needs a lot of reforms, particularly beyond this tax cut in labor and in land reform and and, and much, much more. Train, going back to the trade war, deal or no deal in 2020? (laughs) I I think, you know, um, I think 2020 is interesting because we have President Trump faced in 2020, but before then we have the impeachment, and I'm not a political analyst, so uh, we can say that you know if he's rational, he would avoid um, a recession in the U.S., and that's definitely possible because uh, with with interest expense uh, going uh, lower, with Fed rate cuts and etc., and still you have pretty decent data in the U.S. And, and and in order to do that, he he should also avoid a hard landing in China, right? So so mm-hmm. for example, if China has a hard landing, that will impact globally. Um, so, so I think there is a uh, meeting of mind, and Xi Jinping, I think, is also meeting him halfway in that there's a slowing of China at the moment. Um, but beyond this short-term 2020 story, we, we definitely see a strategic competition, and, and that is, is, um, is accelerating, right? right. Um, and, and, and that in itself uh, will continue to be the theme, I, I think, for the next decade. Right. Um, Lots to look out for in 2020. Thanks so much, Train, for joining us today.
Thanks so much to both Trin and Ling Ling today for talking us through the trade war. Absolutely fascinating topic. It's obviously going to be with us for a while to come. My thanks also to my co-presenter Vincent Nee and our producer Rebecca Bailey and of course to Alex Lestrange who did the marvellous music for the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Join us next time for some more fascinating chats on Asia in Asia Matters. 